Hey yo, Brent went to daughter, calls went to text, planes turned to drones, robotics in effect. Everybody using apps just to place a few bets. With media 2.0, what's coming next? Well, Pete Tonner, very excited to have you on as the inaugural guest for, for New Media 2.0. We'll get into what we're going to talk about in a little while, but I thought it might be a good start to ask you about Act Capital Partners, the, the fund you're currently chairman of. What, what do you guys look to invest in there and how do you define new media in, in, uh, in that fund? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. So, so Act Capital basically is a media, very, very specific media-focused fund. Act, we see, is standing for audience, content and technology. And really, we're looking for opportunities where you see the blend of those three things. In general, I guess what we see is massive media disruption across all forms of media and new models emerging. And as those new models emerge, uh, so too the opportunities. So what we're looking for is to use the experience of our team, which is very media focused, to uncover the real opportunities. In many cases, there'll be organizations that have potential to be globally scalable. Um, in every case, I'm guessing we're gonna find they're gonna be digital opportunities. And one of the themes that I think we're seeing more of is we're seeing opportunities in marketplaces where increasingly media is kind of going in one of two directions. You've got increased concentration at the big traditional media end and you've got increased fragmentation at the other end with you know, lots and lots of podcasts, lots and lots of uh, digital news sites, etc. Uh, we see the opportunity to basically find a way to disrupt that fragmentation to pull it all together with forms of marketplaces where the small guys at the other end who currently struggle to be able to monetize um, their audiences find a way of being able to monetize without compromising the relationship that they have with that audience. And when you look to invest in these companies, you're looking at coming in at seed round, series A, series B, series C, what's the sort of sweet spot for Act Capital? Yeah, very early stage is what we're focused on at the moment. Um, and that's primarily based on the fact that we're a relatively new fund. Uh, we, we want to have a diversified portfolio. And with the capital we've got to deploy, we think that diversification is best brought about through a, a reasonably small number, probably six to 10 uh, investments in this particular fund. Um, but investments in mostly seed round or just after seed round. And talk to me about your own personal background. I know you've, you've worked at, at Foxtel and some other News Corp businesses. What's been your tra trajectory to, uh, to get here today? Yeah, sure. So it's probably three phases, I guess. The first phase, I spent 15 years with Boston Consulting Group, uh, working here and in Southeast Asia in particular. Um, I, I spent that time working across consumer-focused businesses primarily, a bit of financial services and a bit of media. Um, so I was a partner there for five years before uh, I left to go and join Foxtel. Uh, Foxtel had been a fantastic client of mine. Uh, I'd worked with them for probably two years by then. And Kim Williams was the CEO. Um, when he approached me and asked me to join him, it was the most natural thing that uh, you can imagine. But, uh, I was having a great time at BCG, great organization, but I really loved the time I spent working with, with Kim and the team. And I saw the opportunity to take this business, which at that stage had been operating for uh, 10, 12 years, had never made a profit. And we were going through the digitalization of the network. And I saw that digital proposition as an opportunity for us to really make that business hum. 
And so we took it from losing significant amount of money to making close to a billion dollars a year of EBITDA in a uh, quite a, you know, a reasonably long period of time. Um, then after we'd done that, uh, I went across to News Corp. I spent a bit of time with News Corp in uh, really the chief operating officer role, sitting across all of their assets in Australia. So including Fox Sports, Foxtel, REA Group, as well as the publishing assets. Uh, I moved on to be CEO of that business for a short period before I went back to Foxtel as the CEO of Foxtel for a couple of years, um, basically through the period where we put Foxtel and Fox Sports together. And I left there when we concluded that deal. So kind of the first phase for me was the BCG days. The second phase was the kind of News Corp Foxtel days. And the third phase, which has really just been the last couple of years, has been more doing a portfolio of things, focused still very much on media. Um, and I do now portfolio of uh, non-executive director type roles. For example, I'm a, a lead independent director of Village Roadshow. Um, I also uh, do a number of not-for-profits. And so I um, chair a little business called, a little organization called Bus Stop Films, where we teach intellectually disabled young adults how to make screen content in a very uncompromising way. They only make good quality content such that we've exhibited at 50 film festivals around the world and won many awards. Uh, and most importantly, in many cases, change the lives of these students that come and learn how to tell their own story. Um, then I also have spent a lot of time in some um, personal investments, which I've been doing previously, but having a bit more time, I focus much more on personal investments, primarily in startups. Um, one a good example would be The Squiz, which is a, um, the daily news um, email and podcast. Uh, recently extended to cover kids as well with Squiz Kids. Uh, um, a little business called Inkle, which is the aggregator of news products and a number of other startup type businesses. So mm. when, when Adam and I met, um, it was really an opportunity for me to take what I was doing alone with my own money and scale it up a bit, being able to do the same thing, but to be able to do it at a bigger scale with a team of people to work with to throw ideas around with the great advisory group and uh, to really continue my focus on the stuff I love, which is storytelling and particularly storytelling in new uh, media forms rather than traditional media forms. So you're uniquely placed for our discussion today because you've got extensive background in, I guess, traditional forms of media, you know, the News Corp of businesses, even pay TV, I guess, is almost now moving towards a traditional form of media. And then now in, in what you're investing in and working on today, you, you've got a unique insight into to some of the challenges and some of the opportunities that those new media are, are really starting to open up for people. And our discussion today is going to centre around the social dilemma, the, the Netflix documentary, which I guess put a spotlight on on the major tech platforms in particular the social media platforms and and what i guess what they're they're doing to our young people in particular and what different tricks they have to to try and increase people's usage of their products maybe for those that haven't seen the documentary maybe start by walking us through the social dilemma and, and what the premise is of that documentary yeah sure um where to start. Uh, so, so first of all, I think it's important to put in context that Social Dilemma is focused on the negative aspects of those platforms. Mm. And so it's quite a scary documentary, I thought. Um, you come away from it with a, 
a great sense of fear. I think one of the points I would make is it leaves out the positivity that's come out of those social platforms as well. But to me, I'd kind of summarise the uh, the whole documentary in really a couple of statements that they make within it. Um, one is there's a great quote quite early on in it, and it goes something like, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. And I think that's a, a really great insight that basically you're not paying to use uh, Facebook, you're not paying to use Twitter. Um, so therefore, there's a model somewhere where those organisations have to make some money and they're making money out of you. And I think the interesting thing about that for me is that that's no different, if you like, really to free-to-air television um, in the sense that, gee, you're getting it all for free, you're paying in some way, well, you're paying through the advertising. The difference, I think, and the, the reason the social dilemma has got such traction is because it it uses you as a product in a very different way. In, if you like, free-to-air television uses you in a very passive way. I think a, uh, a social media platform uses you in a very active way. And there's a, a, a second thing they refer to that I think is quite important in Social Dilemma, which is they refer to persuasive technology. Mm. And the idea of persuasive technology is it's the use of this incredible technology to create what they describe as as imperceptible changes in behaviour over time, such that the amalgamation of those imperceptible changes of behaviour becomes a significant change in behaviour. And I think that's the the really scary bit. And in some ways, if you kind of think back to the old days of free-to-air used to be criticised as, you know, this is bad for your kids because they sit there and they you know lounge around, don't do anything, they should be out playing cricket and AFL, but instead they're sitting there watching telly and it's bad. Well, I think this is the extension of that. It's the same, it's the same concern around social media, but to a greater degree, because it's not just about sitting around. It's actually about changing your mindset and changing your behaviour. And so let's walk through the, the, the differences between traditional media and news and social media and, and the news people get from that uh, in terms of the the bespoke tailoring of that content, I guess. And, and what, are, what are the main differences between what you would have seen in, in your years at News Corp and the content and news that were offered there and the bespoke sort of offering which people are now consuming on social media? Yeah, I, th I think there's a few differences, a few really key differences. I think one is that traditional mainstream media is also open to the same sort of criticism. And you know, news, at News Corp, we got all that criticism. You know, you hear the criticism of Fox News, for example, as being at an extreme, or even Sky News these days. You hear the criticism of the tabloid newspapers, or you hear the criticism of the Australian. Or the ABC, and, or the Age. Or the you? ABC. For, no, the other, everyone's yeah. got a position. Everyone's got a position. And I think the interesting thing when it's through mainstream media is generally that position is pretty well known. Yeah. And so there's there's no doubt if you're watching Fox News, there's no doubt about what you're going to get. There's no doubt if you pick up the Daily Telly and you read the Daily Telly or you read you know, the Herald Sun, you know what you're going to get. You know what angle it's coming from. You know if you pick up the age, it's going to have a different perspective to if you pick up the, the Herald Sun. The difference, I think, with social media is that you don't know what angle it's coming from. And so what happens, and I think this is the point about the imperceptible changes, is this idea that what you are exposed to shapes the next thing you're exposed to, mm. which shapes the next thing. And so you end up, as they describe it, these imperceptible changes where 
you end up with a uh, kind of reinforcement of the things that are targeted to you that become self-fulfilling. Whereas if you're reading the paper, you know what it is, you know that, that it takes an angle you can adjust. I think one of the issues with social media is it's much harder to form that judgment as to what angle is this post taking? Where does it come from? Is it biased? Is it advocating for one angle versus another? And to me, that that's one of the most significant things. I think there's another, and this sounds quite subtle, but it's something that when I was at News Corp, I really focused a lot on, is if you think about digital media generally, you always think about, you always hear the discussion about traffic. How do I maximise the traffic? If you think about a typical, you know, a TV network or a pay TV network or, or even a newspaper, you much much more likely to hear about audience rather than traffic. And I, I think part of that difference is that if you think about traffic, traffic is going from point A to point B. You don't you you're just travelling the whole time. Think about audience. Audience is really about engagement. So with audience, I'm taking something, I'm absorbing it, I'm engaging with it. And I think that difference between the concept of traffic, where it doesn't really matter where you are as long as you're moving, is very different to the concept of an audience, which is I just want you to engage. The, obviously, the other difference is, um, and again, they, they make a great point about this in Social Dilemma, is um, the difference between customers and users. Mm. And, you know, you always hear a... Um, TV network talk about viewers, or you hear a uh, a newspaper business talk about readers, and yet on the one hand you, you know, that, that's on one hand. On the other hand, you hear about users, and they make a. There's a great quote again in Social Dilemma that says there's only two industries in the world that call their customers users: illegal drugs and software platforms. And I think that's again, it's just that difference in the mindset in the way in which you look at it. And I guess that premise that it's got the ability to normalise more extreme views, like you say, that in terms of traffic, they're moving you in a certain direction based on what's gaining your attention. So that you know, rather than the ABC News just delivering the news, if the ABC News would have realised the person in their land room is an Antifa supporter, they'd send that news further and further left, essentially normalising views which in days gone by wouldn't be normalized because it might be harder to find someone who shares that level of extreme view as the viewer. Um, yeah. Is that one of the main things that you see as potentially dangerous? It's certainly what was illustrated in the show. Yeah, no, it's certainly what the show illustrated was this idea that in a sense, there's communities of interest rather than geographic communities. And so you end up with a community of interest where it might be what you would traditionally have thought of as a niche but because it spans globally it becomes a very very big segment of people where you can get that constant reinforcement and that that I think is a dangerous thing it's a dangerous thing for people not to be able to get that spread it's interestingly it's one of the reasons I think that the the squeeze kids podcast is so successful because a lot of parents want their kids to be exposed to, well, they, they want them to learn to be critical consumers of news content. And Squiz Kids helps people to do that, helps kids to do that by having an unbiased, complete spectrum of facts around the important things that are happening over the course of the day. And I think having that trusted environment becomes more and more important. Watching the show and, and having some exposure to, to, to clickbait, 
even at a personal level, has, has reminded me of that idea that we've had serious, significant inflation in news. When we think of inflation in, in the real world, we think of CPI or wage price inflation. With all the money printing that's gone on, we've seen that show up in asset prices. With all this content that's being spewed out constantly now, it doesn't feel like any one piece of content carries nearly as much weight as it did a generation ago. Do you think we've reached a point where we've had a, a type of inflation in, in news whereby it's very hard for, for any one piece to, to gain much traction anymore? And in, in effect, you need that real pile on and, and movement to get the sort of effect that perhaps one article could have had a generation or two ago? Yeah, I think that there's definitely that fragmentation. And with the fragmentation comes, you know, from an advertiser perspective, this increasing challenge over the last 20 years, probably forever, but certainly over the last 20 years of, of how am I going to have my message cut through? And, you know, you think about the average audiences of the top TV shows or the average audiences of, uh, you know, any of the publications, um, they're all going down because of the fragmentation. There's so much more to consume. And, and I think in, uh, I'm struggling a little bit with the idea of inflation. Maybe inflation is the right term, but I think it's that almost that's the fragmentation that there's so much out there and there's so many different ways to consume it and the big brands that you are used to having that help you to navigate through it don't exist to the same extent anymore and so therefore you've got you it's a lot harder to find the signposts that help you to understand that is this credible is it true is it uh, coming from a particular angle or not um, that you used to be able to get much more easily? I think one of the important things you said at the start when you introduced the social dilemma is that it was probably a lack of balance when they were talking yeah. through the issue. It was really clear. And I think few people could argue that there's been some huge damaging impacts from social media on, on young people comparing their lives to a, a perfectly branded life of, of somebody else. And we can go through lots of different issues that have arisen already and will continue to arise but it did perhaps neglect some of the huge benefits that that free content ha have given to people and that democratization of information first of all if content is going to be free is it unreasonable for expect to people that people expect that data isn't going to be monetized at some level like, what do people think the motivation is for publicly listed companies who have a a duty to create shareholder value, what do they expect the, these companies are doing it for? Well, I think, I think that's the, the, the issue. I think there's two parts to that, though, and it's kind of the way I like to think about this value equation on anything. But the first thing is, is there value being created? And then the second is, how's, the, how's that value being captured? And I think people have, I think, a reasonable expectation that if they're getting something for free, then somebody's going to get the benefit out of it in some way or another. And I think for many people, frankly, they don't care much about if their data is being used or not. And, you know, there's a, sure, there's a bit of noise around it, but gee, if you get something that's pitched to you that's in the sweet spot that recognises that you're looking for a, you know, looking to go on an African safari and all of a sudden there's an ad there for the perfect African safari, that's fantastic. But I think that where you get a backlash is, you know, for example, if I decide I want to buy a tent, um, I go down to Anaconda and I buy a tent, and then for the next three months I'm getting an ad for a tent pitched to me. 
you know, that's when you start to react or where, you know, I've got a, a personal beef with the way LinkedIn does this, that LinkedIn will pitch jobs saying, hey, here's a great job for you. And you say, really? Like, where did you get that idea from? How can that possibly be the case? So because my profile has CEO, I'll get pitched a job for an executive assistant to a CEO, for example. And so I think I think consumers have an understanding that they, they pay in one way or another, but they have to see the value come back. If the value is not coming back in a sensible way where it's adding value back to them, I think there's a backlash. I think that the other issue about, first of all, is to establish is there value created? And clearly there's value created if you're able to consume content for free, et cetera. The real issue then is where where is it captured? And I think this is the dilemma for journalists around the country and other content producers around the country is they're creating value. They're, they're definitely the readership of a lot of these stories is still as high or higher than it has been in the past when it's distributed digitally, except that the value is not being captured by the content creator. The value is being captured by the distributor or the platform. And I think that's where the, the most uh, commercial grief is at the moment and why you're seeing things like the government um, proposed code for the tech giants. Do you think the, you know, the idea around Anaconda um, sending me advertisements for a tent because it's clear on, on Facebook activity that I'm looking to go camping, that feels to me like a very different proposition to, to Facebook working out that I'm right-wing leaning and, and slowly sending me more and more articles to make the left look completely crazy, pushing me further and further down the the spectrum, down the political spectrum. Do you do you think there's a delineation between those two, those two issues? Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting because it. Um, I, I heard on the radio this morning something around um, ethics in artificial intelligence, mm. and which is kind of a little bit the same. It's you know, so who should determine what's right and what's wrong in the way these in which these algorithms are used, and it's a really complex issue i think because is it the person who creates the algorithm that determines where you're going to you know you're going to be sent down this particular pathway are they the ones that should have the ethical responsibility or is it me as a user who has to take responsibility for myself or is it facebook as a platform that has to take responsibility and i think that i don't think we've worked that out yet i think it's still something to be solved over time do you think it's just a, a social media phenomenon because for me it feels like just about all media has moved further and further away from the center and the name of the game seems yeah. to be putting putting people in different teams and essentially playing them off against each other whereby if, if someone's slightly on the other side of center from your team they get portrayed to look completely crazy um because media companies have worked out that that fires you up and, and, and makes you consume more media. I feel like that's perhaps a new phenomenon, not just with social media, but with media in its entirety now that perhaps wasn't around 20 or 30 years ago. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think it's true of media. I think it's true of politics. I think it's true in many cases that you you there's more bifurcation of the population into groups. Mm. And, you know, I think um, the... the it, in some ways, people have found, I think, and maybe it's to do with the clutter and it being so hard to cut through. But as it becomes harder and harder to cut through, the best way to cut through is to be on the extreme. And mm. so I think that's this pulling apart, if you like, of, of views. And yet, ironically, on the other hand, if you 
look at the political parties, then there's more people who sit in between and, and swing than have in the past and fewer rusted on Labor voters or rusted on Liberal voters. But I think that's probably because rather than necessarily... Um, I think I think it's about the fact that they have to go further out, and so in going further out, they leave, leave more space in the centre, and so you find that there is a bigger swing. But it feels to me, you know, most people I speak to that actually meet in real life, they are largely centrist. They're not on the extremes of, of left or right. Is there a market there for a centrist to take the market, or is it just they don't get any airtime because they're not going to... They're not going to get played by the different media outlets who have aligned themselves to a, a different group. Uh, well, I, w- I would go back to the, uh, I, I don't want to keep harping on it, but the Squiz as an example, the, the Squiz newsletter and podcast. You know, the, the key thing with the Squiz is the Squiz is fact-based, un- unbiased, non-opinion-led. And the audience that it has is increasing and significant. But more importantly, the audience is, has incredible affinity with that product. And that affinity, I think, is about the trust uh, that they have in, in what they're hearing because it's so hard to find somewhere you can go and get that unbiased, non-opinion-based mm. news these days. Uh, I, and, you know, it doesn't set out to be centrist per se. It sets, sets out to be factual, but I think it's the same thing in many ways. And I think the fact that it can grow, not only grow a big audience, but grow a big audience with great affinity and great trust is basically a reflection of what you're, you're saying, that there, there is room for somebody who is just straight down the line. I'm not sure if you've read any of Morgan Housel's stuff, but he's a brilliant finance writer. And he, he speaks about the idea that we've got currently got the biggest wealth inequality we've ever seen before and it's happened at a a time when our lives are more interconnected than ever before and essentially you can compare how you're going with almost anybody else in the world and that's such a toxic combination it's hard to see that getting better before it gets worse certainly you know the longer interest rates stay at at zero or, or negative in many places around the world the bigger difference is probably going to be between capital and labor and certainly that connectivity between people's lives doesn't feel it's going away. Do you think this idea and this hostility that we're seeing online is going to get worse before it gets better? You know, to be honest, I'm not so sure. I, I do think that there's an evolution and that whatever happens takes time. I've, I've got no doubt about that. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, a story I heard recently of when the automobile was introduced and you know, what, a, like a, what a great invention, what a great mm. proposition. When the automobile was first introduced, under the law, somebody at night had to walk in front carrying a red lantern so you could see that there was a car coming along. Mm. And you think, how, looking back, how ridiculous that is. I think it was something very new. It took a long time for it to evolve. And I suspect that we're in that space now where there, there just has to be more of an evolution of this new technology and it'll be affected as consumers form stronger and clearer you know, attitudes as to how to think about it. It'll be affected as regulation evolves and we'll get a greater perspective on regulation. And I think it'll also be affected by more tools and, and uh, abilities for people to actually see through some of that. So I think it will self-correct over time. How it self-corrects, it's a bit hard to see. Um, if I had to take a, 
a stab, I would say, I think COVID has probably been in some ways a step forward in this in that I think through the COVID period, I think there's been a rise of, I guess, what I would call soft socialism, mm. um, where there's a recognition, I think, from all sides that, you know, you do have to look after aged care in a different way than than we have in the past, where childcare has to be addressed in a different way than it has in the past. I think some of those things are naturally going to rebalance a little bit as a result of this period. Now, I don't think it addresses the issue you're talking about completely, but I think it, it is at the edge and starts to um, redress some of that disparity that you're talking about. And you often hear in terms of how it's going to get better that the big tech platforms like Facebook or, or Twitter saying, well, we're, we're a platform where about freedom of speech, it's, it's not up to us to moderate conversations. But media outlets don't have that luxury. You know, if you're a Channel 9 or if you're The Age or if you're Herald Sun, whoever, there, there's really strict rules about defamation. There's all sorts of other legislation you can't glorify using drugs. You can't yeah. uh, incite violence. You can't talk about suicide and, and mention that somebody is now at, at peace because that's glorifying suicide. So whilst there is ostensibly freedom of speech, there's a whole heap of legislation that traditional media companies have to play by. Why aren't, you know, well, firstly, is it possible that the, those same things can apply to these tech platforms? Uh, I, I think ultimately there has to be, it has to, but I think you should never understate how complex an area this is. And I'll just give you two simple examples. One of them is clearly these are global platforms. And so you have to deal with uh, you know, global regulation or global standards um, to a larger extent than we've had to see in the past. And it's very hard to have something that's a global standard and a global approach because you have to accommodate cultural differences and a whole range of things that make it difficult. So I think that's one point. Um, the, the second point I'd say is that it, you, you've got to decide where you draw the line when you're thinking about this regulation. And I think, it's, so to use a really simple example, um, yes, media companies have to be responsible for what they publish. And then you say, well, what about the platform? Shouldn't they as well? Now, personally, I think that they should, but that's a mm. slightly different, you know, that's my personal opinion. If you take a step back and say, well, what about the telcos that deliver the pipes that um, those social media platforms that delivered on, they're also a part of the distribution. Should they have a role as well? And, and you know, we have dealt with this a lot when it comes to dealing with um, piracy, for example. And so is it the pirate bays that should be responsible and you should close down pirate bays so people can't pirate content? But then at what point do you say, well, what about the ISP that's actually allowing it to happen? And if you take a step further, what about the telco that's providing the pipes that's being delivered over? And I think we've still got to work our way through where do you draw the line and, and who has to be held accountable for it. But is this complex? I mean, we, we don't have any of those arguments with, um, you know, Telstra providing bandwidth to, to News Corp or, or Channel 9. We've been able to navigate that quite clearly. Why is it that complicated if tech companies that are making billions of dollars I guess it's the it's the geograph geographical challenge that that steps out more than anything. But do you feel like it's a, it's an excuse when they say it is just too complicated because they know that it's making them so much money, or is it legitimately it is just too complicated that that they can't work out how to do it? Oh, I think to be honest, I think it's really hard to judge that. I think um, I think there's 
good in, good intent and there's good commercial reasons why these tech platforms have to adjust and change. But it, it is, you can also see why some of the things that are being asked for of those platforms become incredibly difficult. And, and I'll just use a really simple example. The, the proposed code, um, which had um, a desire that whenever there's going to be a change in algorithm from a, for example, for Google, Google would have to notify the publishers of the change of algorithm. Now that all sounds perfectly fine, except that there's thousands and thousands of algorithm changes in the course of a year. And is it really practical if they were to notify and give, I don't know, I can't remember what the notice period was, but to give 28 days notice before a change of algorithm, then if you're sitting in Google's head office and saying, hey, little old Australia wants to make this change, then I think that's a really hard proposition. Mm. If you move back to a position that says, hey, if there's algorithm changes which are going to impact on your business in a material way and they're well-defined and we know, then I think that's a perfectly fair proposition. But I think we've got to feel our way through the balance of, of those two things. And so in the interest of, of balance and, and not just portraying big tech as being, you know, big, bad Facebook or, or Twitter, if I look at my own experience, I finished football about five years ago now, and it was largely through, you know, either free content available through social media or some paid newsletters. It's really taught me to invest and given me a career that I'm, I'm interested in and, and given me insights into the best investors in the world that I could have never have gotten without the democratisation of information. Just talk about how powerful that's been on the world. And, and do you think whilst it's easy to criticise these big platforms, we do lose sight of just what an opportunity it's been for so many people around the world to have, have access to information that they couldn't have dreamed of having you know, generations oh, ago? I think that's exactly right. I think, um, that, and I think that's a good term to use as well. It's that democratisation of knowledge um, where, it, you know, yes, there's pitfalls, but gee, wouldn't you rather be able to access Wikipedia and be able to very quickly understand something um, that, you know, you, maybe you can't be 100% sure, 100% certain that it's factual, but you're still going to have a fair degree of confidence if you're able to go and tap into a bunch of different information sources than you would if you can't tap into anything. Mm. Um, would, wouldn't you rather, for, for example, I... Um, like reading the New York Times, like I would just think, wow, isn't it great that I can relatively cheaply subscribe to the New York Times and read it every day rather than reading it whenever I get on a plane in the US. You know, there's there's so many benefits that are brought about as well. Um, I, uh, at the moment, I'm doing some study at Harvard Business School and I think, wow, like if I had to get on a plane to go there to study, then I'd never be able to get the opportunity to learn what I'm learning from those guys. So there's a huge number of benefits. I think it's important not to lose those benefits. In terms of how you're thinking, what comes next in terms of these big platforms? It's easy to articulate sort of what some of the challenges are. Is it a case where some people will opt to pay money and then they won't get pushed any advertising? Does that create issues where then people that can't afford to pay that still getting pushed in either direction on the political spectrum while the wealthier uh, have a more balanced outlook on life. What do you think potentially comes next with these platforms and, and where, where are the potential opportunities yeah. in that? So, so I think there'll be a combination of three things. I think there will be some regulatory change and some much needed regulatory change, but I think it takes time and it's very nuanced. And so I think that will emerge 
um, progressively and there'll be frustration for many years to come until that is definitive. I think there's changes in consumer attitudes and I think those changes in consumer attitudes will really impact uh, because on the one hand, and, and I guess, I, again, just to use a simple example, I, uh, when I was at News Corp, when I was at Foxtel, we used to always talk to advertisers about the fact that they should be cautious about shifting all their spend towards Google, for example, um, because it's a danger if you you know, lose that media diversification and you've only got one provider. And everybody used to agree, but what happened, they continued to shift it. And so but if for as long as consumers still have the view that they're that they may object, but they're going to keep spending their money, um, then you won't get the change. But I think when you get enough of a movement of consumers that say, actually, you know what, I'm not going to allow cookies anymore. Or yeah. when you get someone who says, uh, you know, I'm not going to go and uh, source anything from that free site anymore. I'm going to go and pay. I think when you start to get that change in consumer behavior, I think then you get stuck to see a bit of correction. And then I think the other thing is you will see the evolution in tools and uh, other um, things that are available to you to help the consumer to address the issue. And that might be things as simple as tools that help you understand the angle that some of that news is coming from. It might be products like Inkle, for example, that aggregate the news so that you can see, you can read both sides of, of what's coming. Or it might be, uh, things as simple as uh, as site blockers, um, but I think those things will all emerge over time. And so I, I think it's a long journey rather than a short journey, in my view. But I think we'll we'll see a natural evolution, as we have in the history of the world, as uh, you know, new things get introduced and they might be a, seen as a problem initially, but eventually they evolve. You'd love to see that discussed in schools heavily too, analysing content online, and you know, in terms of what's going to be relevant for kids uh, as they grow up yeah. being able to understand that just because something's been printed online, it isn't necessarily true. And, and what are the heuristics to use for something that may be true and, and yeah. probably isn't feels like a really valuable use of time that, that the schools could embark on as well. Oh uh, yeah, I completely agree. I, I think actually the, um, there was a great example in the social dilemma. I don't know if you remember it about the flat earth conspiracy. Yeah. And you look at something like that, that to many of us just seems so obvious. Um, but we're not talking about stupid people who kind of went along that pathway. I think having enough education and at a young enough age to help people to understand about that and then to help them to be discerning consumers of information, I think becomes one of the really core roles of education. And what about big tech more broadly? We've spoken about the social media giants, but when you look at companies like Amazon, Apple, they're all part of this data play that um, well, some will say is, is having a huge impact on the world. What do you think happens with big tech more broadly from a regulatory standpoint? Do you think there's a, a risk that that does get, does get broken up? Uh, I think ultimately I think there. It, it depends on how they evolve and if they keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the the economics of these platform style businesses are pretty self-reinforcing. And so, you know, you, they get to a size where the position becomes pretty unassailable. Mm. And I think that's when it's likely a regulator is going to have to step in. And so the, the challenge is how does a regulator do that? And so, 
for example, just hypothetically, but if the regulator in Australia said, well, sorry, we're not going to allow Apple products to be sold in Australia anymore because we think they have too much market power. I don't know how the consumer reacts to that. But I can imagine there'd be plenty of people who would have black market iPhones if that were the case. Mm. And so it, it, um, in principle, I think there'll be an attempt by regulators to try and break down those perceived monopolies. Um, but it, again, it's, it's a global issue rather than a local issue. And so we're not used to dealing with things on a global scale. It feels like a, probably a, a pretty good place for us to finish. You're in Sydney, so you're, you're free to enjoy the rest of your life. I'm here in Melbourne. I've got uh, kids screaming at me and various other things to get back to, but I, I loved it, Pete. Could have chatted with you for another hour, but uh, appreciate your time and, and thanks for being a part of the first episode. No, great. Thank you. Good to chat. Thanks, Pete. If you're enjoying New Media 2.0, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.